Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Okay, good evening. My name is Clarinda Blaze, and I'm a program officer at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Thank you so much for choosing to spend this time with us this evening, or this morning, depending on where you are. We're really pleased to have you all here. I'm going to leave the discussion of the contents of our webinar to our experts, of course, but I think at the outset, I'd just like to mention, as I'm sure most of you are already aware, that the opioid epidemic is the most deadly drug epidemic in US history, and it has ravaged um, our local communities. Unfortunately, with the onset of COVID-19, we've seen the rate of opioid-related overdose deaths increase at a pretty stark rate. And it is for this reason that the National Committee felt it pertinent to gather our community to discuss this issue and China's role in it. That being said, we recognize that though we'll be talking about China's role in the opioid epidemic and fentanyl, we also recognize that this issue for so many of us is personal and emotional. So I'd just like to offer a brief disclaimer that tonight's webinar will include discussion of drug abuse, addiction, and overdose. Fortunately, we are joined by three very special guests to help us navigate this difficult topic. You've all gotten their bios and hopefully had a chance to read them. If not, I encourage you to do so. So I'll just briefly introduce each of them. I'll start with our two experts. First, Dr. Vonda Felbab-Brown, who holds many titles. Among them, she is a senior fellow at the Center for Security, Strategy, and Technology at the Brookings Institute. She is also the director for Brookings' recent series of papers on the opioid epidemic in the United States. She is an expert on internal and international conflict and non-traditional security threats, including illicit economies and organized crime. We are also joined tonight by Mr. Ben Westhoff, who comes with a slightly different but equally interesting background. Ben is an investigative journalist who writes about music, culture, drugs, and poverty. He is the former music editor for the LA Weekly and is the author of several books. His most recent, Fentanyl Inc., How Rogue Chemists Are Creating the Deadliest Wave of the Opioid Epidemic. And if that wasn't enough to keep you with us, we are also joined by Ms. Emily Fung, who of course is the Beijing correspondent for National Public Radio. Before she joined NPR, she was a foreign correspondent for the Financial Times, where she was widely recognized for her investigative journalism on human rights abuses in Xinjiang. Emily will be moderating tonight's discussion. Before we begin, I'll briefly mention that you're encouraged to submit your questions at any time during the webinar via the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. We encourage you to include your name and affiliation so that we can recognize you during the open Q&A session. And with that, I'll turn it over to Emily. Thank you for the introductory remarks. Uh, I just wanted to give a brief comment about how excited I am for this conversation because from my perspective sitting here in Beijing and reporting on China, the fentanyl issue is normally quite siloed in discussion. There's the public health conversation, the policy discussion, and the policy discussion is often siloed by country and not, not very global. And then from what I see in China, uh, and those hopefully will all be strung together today in our conversation so we can understand a bit about why the opioid, opioid epidemic has become so, so severe, but also talk a bit more about international strategies. Um, and with that, why don't we begin with 
a few basics for people who have not been reading or studying fentanyl for a while um, about what fentanyl actually is and how it normally is, is used. My understanding when I began this reporting was that it was only a drug that was abused, but no, in fact, it is a legitimate medical substance that has become abused over the last decade or so. Ben, Bonda, feel free to jump in in whatever order you'd like. Well, I can kick it off. Fentanyl was created by a Belgian chemist named Paul Janssen in the late 50s, and it was intended to be an alternative to morphine, something that would come on stronger and cause less nausea, be more effective in the operating theater for things like open heart surgery. Um, it was a revelation. It did all the things he hoped it would and became the most heavily used hospital drug in the world. Um, and for a long time, no one suspected that it would cross into the recreational realm at all. In fact, as recently as 2016, the DEA's annual report said basically nothing to see here. You know, fentanyl was not going to catch on and become a drug of abuse because it's so powerful. It's 50 times stronger than heroin. And um, it, was, it was actually that very year that fentanyl surpassed heroin and prescription pills in terms of the number of American deaths per year. So you can think of fentanyl as the third wave of the opioid epidemic with prescription pills like OxyContin being the first wave, heroin the second wave. And now in, in lots of parts of America, you can't find any pure heroin that doesn't have fentanyl cut into it. Not to mention other drugs like meth and cocaine and particularly black market prescription pills nowadays um, are killing especially young people all over the country. So that's kind of how we got to where we are now. Well, um, thanks Ben for that opening. Let me sort of pick up or elaborate on, on a few points. Uh, one of the reasons that um, fentanyl has become uh, in the United States, the deadliest um, uh, recreational drugs uh, is uh, that uh, the method of production became greatly simplified about uh, a decade, a decade and a half ago. So the, the original um, formula for producing fentanyl is fairly complex and uh, requires not just uh, significant chemistry know-how, but significant uh, uh, pharmaceutical production base. And that's one of the reasons why the production of fentanyl, both legal and illegal, is centered on countries like China and, um, and India. Uh, it, the fentanyl, by the way, is a synthetic drug, it's a synthetic opioid. So, op so all drugs can be plant-based. Um, heroin is derived from uh, poppy, or they can be synthetic, uh, which do not involve poppy plants, although they do involve synthetic drugs, do involve um, uh, precursor agents. So one of the reasons why we see much more use and spread of fentanyl to recreational markets is the recent, relatively recent simplification of the method by which fentanyl can be uh, produced. The second reason um, uh, uh, is um, what, what Ben already started talking about, namely the evolution of the opioid epidemic in the United States, which originates with prescription drugs and, and originates in the 1990s 
with uh, duplicitous, criminal, egregious, <laughs> deceptive practices by major pharmaceutical companies that are promoting um, the use of uh, painkillers for chronic pain. Now, don't get me wrong. I am all for uh, treating uh, pain. Uh, it's fundamental human right and it helps um, uh, recovery. However, how one treats pain is very important. And so while for many decades and in many parts of the world, including United States up to the 1980s, you would have um, very brutal non-treatment of pain, even for extreme pain. Starting in the 1990s, the United States essentially airs on the opposite side. All of a sudden it starts prescribing very powerful prescription uh, uh, opioids like oxycodone uh, for um, relatively minor pain. So lengthy courses of oxycodone for sprained ankle, for broken arm. Fentanyl is a drug that, as Ben said, is used in surgeries. Um, it's also uh, incidentally used for intubating COVID patients. You really don't want to be put on a respirator without uh, um, having the benefits, the, the pain removing and uh, sedation benefits uh, of fentanyl. And it's also used for cancer patients or other patients with extreme pains who are no longer responsive to um, uh, opioids such as morphine. Uh, and so, so the, the overprescription of, of regular uh, drugs in the United States, starting with oxycodone, then morphs into uh, the supply of uh, addiction of substance use disorder with uh, heroin and ultimately switches to fentanyl. And this is the point I want to end the opening comment. Why do we have the switch to fentanyl? Uh, as Ben said, fentanyl is maybe 50 times more potent than um, heroin uh, and 100 times more potent than morphine. It is also extremely difficult to dose and cut for an opioid user well to avoid overdose. Overdose is very easy, very rapid, and tends to be very lethal. That's why we see um, uh, death rates uh, in the United States, overdose death rates, 70,000 in 2019. Um, in 2020, we don't have the formal numbers, but we estimate it will be well over 80,000. So why would users want to use such a very dangerous drug? if they can use oxycodone or if they can use um, heroin? Well, the answer is that this is a drug that's uh, the choice of which probably does not most of the time originate with users and instead is uh, promoted by dealers and pushers. Because the key characteristic of synthetic drugs like fentanyl is that they are very potent per um, per weight. So the, the same amount of potency that you get out of heroin um, is a fraction of what you get out of fentanyl. So that means smuggling is extraordinarily easy. The amount of the bulk drug that it takes to supply the US heroin market with fentanyl is a tiny fraction of what it takes to supply the US drug with, um, uh, with heroin, for example. And so for drug traffickers, for dealers and pushers, um, Fentanyl uh, provides enormous opportunities to uh, simplify smuggling and to supply the market. And that's what is uh, critically unique as one of the features that's critically unique about uh, fentanyl. And while we are seeing a drug epidemic, not just different in the scale of proportion to anything we have seen in US history, but, but whose many dimensions are very different. 
And we can go into the patterns of abuse later, but Vanda, you mentioned that, and, and Ben, that this begins in China, that you see this pharmaceutical manufacturing capacity expand in China unless the abuse of synthetic opioids and other drugs coming from, from China. How does it begin there? Who is making this stuff in China and how are they supplying it to markets in Europe and the US? Well, for my book, I tried to answer this exact question and it started just by Googling buy fentanyl in China. And there's actually a whole crop of new drugs known as novel psychoactive substances that are all synthetic and they're all made in China. You may have heard of a drug like K2 or spice, which is also known as synthetic marijuana, uh, bath salts, you know, crocodile. They have all these, these funny names, but they're all basically, they're opioids, they're um, hallucinogenics, psychedelics, they're novel benzodiazepines, and they're all made in China um, simply for the reason that so many of the, the, the legal drugs and, and other products are made in China. Um, China has the biggest chemical and pharmaceutical industry in the world, and the vast majority of it is dedicated to legal drugs and medicines. For example, almost all of the uh, vitamin C, all of the generic Tylenol, almost all of the generic medicine generally that Americans take is made in China. And when it comes to um, fentanyl itself, it's been banned in China for a long time. Until recently, however, the analogs of fentanyl were, were mostly all legal. Now an analog is something that it, it has almost the same chemical structure as fentanyl, but it, it just, the chemical structure is slightly tweaked, meaning that now you have a new chemical that has effects pretty similar to fentanyl, but it's totally legal. And so this was a constant game of cat and mouse for years between law enforcement, between the lawmakers in China. Every time they found out about a new type of fentanyl, they would go through a, a long process and it would become scheduled, meaning uh, not legal for, for the general public. But then the, the chemists would simply tweak the formula again until you had a new version. Um, in 2019, all fentanyl analogs were banned in China. And so the US thought this was uh, something they'd long sought, sought for and they thought this was, this was good progress. Unfortunately, as, as you know from the numbers that, that Vanda was just was telling us, um, it hasn't done anything to slow the fentanyl epidemic. And a big reason for that is that China also produces what are known as the precursor chemicals for fentanyl. Now, a precursor chemical is the most important chemical ingredients to make a certain drug. So when you think about methamphetamine, for example, Sudafed is the precursor ingredient. And back in the 2000s, you always heard about these uh, crank cooks from the middle of the country going into a Walgreens and walking out with a big armful, you know, all the Sudafed in the store, which they would boil down and use to, to make meth. These fentanyl precursors, on the other hand, are all made in China and they're all completely legal. It, almost all of them are completely legal in China and they are, have connections with the Mexican cartels. And so um, these Chinese chemical companies, again, all operating completely legally. And as I discovered in my research, um, actually subsidized by the government in a big way, many of these companies 
they're making huge quantities of these precursor chemicals and shipping them to, to Mexico where the cartels receive them and finish the fentanyl the rest of the way. So that's a very simple process. From there, the cartels send the, the, the fentanyl across the border into the US and it's distributed the same way all other drugs are distributed in the US, um, cocaine, heroin, meth, and even still marijuana to a certain extent. These drugs are all uh, packaged and distributed by the Mexican cartels. Let me pick up again on a few comments. So, you know, how do you make illegal drugs? Although this is not a webinar on how to make illegal drugs. Uh, you can uh, do them as an illegal uh, actor. So as a criminal group can set up a basement operations uh, to produce uh, uh, banned uh, illicit, illicit narcotics. Uh, that is um, uh, a substantial amount of how illicit narcotics are produced. A second far more efficient uh, method is to produce illicit narcotics in uh, chemical or pharmaceutical industries, or for that matter, even uh, potentially uh, industries that supply agricultural companies, so a variety of chemical industries, uh, and divert them to the illegal market. So in China, uh, you have the legal production of fentanyl that supplies um, uh, the uh, legal medical industry, including uh, of the United States. Uh, some of these legal factories do divert, do produce fentanyl that is unaccounted for and it's diverted to the illegal market. Uh, you also have um, uh, many uh, other chemical agricultural companies uh, that all together with the pharmaceutical industry that has at least 5,000 firms, uh, if you count in also the, the chemical uh, industry, you end up with several hundred thousand facilities where fentanyl can potentially be produced. So we have a huge enforcement monitoring regulatory problem. And then you also have uh, illicit production. Moreover, as Ben already spoke, um, uh, you also have the production of um, of precursor agents, um, including for um, fentanyl. So China, like India, have a big advantage in producing fentanyl both for legal market and the illegal market on scales that they cook in um, Querero, Mexico, or Jalisco, Mexico, um, will not be able to achieve. Uh, nonetheless, um, there is still uh, increasing uh, growing production of, of uh, fentanyl in Mexico, partially in response to the tighter regulation uh, in China, the scheduling of all fentanyl analogs that Ben spoke about, and to more enforcement action. So, you know, probably when Ben was uh, doing um, research for his book uh, up to say two, three years ago, or two years ago, really, um, uh, lots of the um, uh, sales of fentanyl were very uh, publicly displayed on, on major internet sites. It was totally free, uh, wheeling, essentially non-hidden uh, sale of a drug uh, that was um, scheduled in the United States. So you can only import it with special permission from the Drug Enforcement Administration. That's fairly changed. You still see some of the more visible sites, but since the um, April 2014, May 2014, um, sorry, 2019 um, regulation, um, far more of the sales have moved to the dark web. They are more hidden. They are more um, obfuscated and clandestine uh, than used to be the case. 
But precursors are still flowing, not just to Mexico. Uh, both precursors and also Finnish fentanyl are also going to India. So India has become a major sourcing um, issue, uh, a major sourcing place for uh, Mexican drug trafficking groups and will likely grow so. We also have direct sales of fentanyl and other uh, psychotropic and, and other synthetic drugs from India uh, to the United States. And once again, you have a country that like China has a very powerful, very potent pharmaceutical industry that hates to be regulated not that different from the pharmaceutical industry in the United States, uh, but in a political system in India that's even far more susceptible to regulatory capture and where the enforcement capacity uh, uh, are nowhere on par to what even China has. So I mentioned that China, despite it being a country with enormously powerful law enforcement agencies, still has vast regulatory monitoring enforcement problem. I spoke of several hundred thousand production, potential legal production facilities, not even looking at uh, illegal production sites. And yet China has a few thousand uh, inspectors to monitor the facilities. That means that most facilities are never at all inspected, let it know on a systematic basis. Well, all of these problems are significantly amplified um, in the case of uh, India. And of course, um, the, the international politics, the geopolitics of, um, of handling the illegal supply out of China and the illegal supply out of India are very different uh, for the United States with uh, uh, US-China relations uh, during the Trump administration sliding into a very obvious um, tension, conflict, uh, uh, rivalry, uh, whereas uh, uh, the United States has actively tried to um, court India as a, as a partner, such as in the so-called strategic quad. So the ability to pressure India uh, to crack down on its under-regulated, under-enforced uh, pharmaceutical industry and the illegal flows of uh, drugs like fentanyl out of India uh, are um, even more complicated than those relations with India, which uh, sorry, with China, which are um, hardly uh, easy. One of the fascinating and, and terrifying aspects of reporting and researching on fentanyl that I found was that, that it's completely possible only because of the internet. Then you talk about researching your book a few years ago and beginning by simply Googling where to get fentanyl and finding people who are openly advertising it. Years later, in 2020, as I was reporting on precursor chemicals, as long as you knew the exact chemical number, cast number for the compound that you were looking for, you could still find people openly advertising this stuff. And Facebook messaged them or WhatsApp them. One of them just called me yesterday because they're clearly still operating and they're trying to sell the customers during the COVID pandemic. They called so, you? Wow, that's bold. Yeah, yeah, so I can't tell if they're desperate if, because business is really good. Either way, it's quite morbid. But can you talk a little bit about your process of going undercover, finding these vendors, and you know what we talk about all the stuff they made in China, but what it looks like on the ground? And I'd be interested to compare what you found a few years ago and, and what I was seeing last year. Yeah, I actually went to Wuhan. And so this was before coronavirus, and most Americans had never heard of it, even though it's, you know, there's 11 million people there. Um, Wuhan is a big university town. And they have a huge science industry. 
so it's kind of a, a lot of young scientists that go into these chemical companies. And but the guy I spoke with um, was uh, kind of an old businessman who was once known as the richest man in Wuhan, and he had a chemical that was called Yuan Chung. And they sold all sorts of chemicals. They listed 10,000 chemicals on their website. Everything from like rubber accelerants for the manufacturing process to synthetic cinnamon, to Viagra, to all these uh, fentanyl precursors. And I just started chatting with um, all the salespeople on Skype. And eventually I said, you know, I'm coming to China I, I'd made up a fake Skype name. I think I called myself Johnny Webster and I put a picture of like a surfer bro on there. I don't know why I thought that would be the ticket, but, but they said, yeah, you can just, um, you know, show up, this is our address. And so I just, I went there and it was in this bustling neighborhood in Wuhan. And I was shocked to see that there was a huge sales floor of recent college graduates just sitting at um, sitting at cubicles in front of computers. They were all um, picked for their English abilities. They communicated on social media, on Skype. They, they sent me, you know, like you were saying, they sent me all these emoji laden messages on my birthday, they <laughs> reached out or my, my alibi's birthday anyway, my, uh, my alter ego's birthday. And, um, I, you know, I had envisioned there would be guys that something like the Mexican or Colombian cartels, guys with AK-47s guarding the door, but it just looked completely like a corporate Western sales floor. And, and it was housed, this company was housed in a hotel. And I found out that the employees actually all lived in the hotel. And there was, um, I just pretended to be a dumb American potential customer. And they gave me the whole tour of the facilities there was a canteen downstairs. There was a, a chef who was preparing their, their lunch for the day. It, it kind of reminded me sort of like a Google campus in, in kind of a scaled down way. And um, they also sell anabolic steroids and they, they kind of specialize in all these sort of gray market chemicals, stuff that is, uh, that's often scheduled in the US but totally legal in China. Um, and, and, you know, like I said, these, these, uh, chemical, these fentanyl precursors are legal, but they sent them out in fake packaging. They showed me like this uh, baggie bag that looked like cat food that they would send it in or another that was like dried fruit snacks. So it was a very, a very cynical operation in, in one regard. In another though, the salespeople literally did not know what fentanyl was. Fentanyl is not a problem in China at all. In fact, the only countries where fentanyl is really an epidemic is the, the US and Canada, and also Estonia, a small country in Europe. So they, they didn't know what fentanyl was. I talked to the CEO, I really grilled the, the CEO, and he insisted that these chemicals could be used for all sorts of different things, you know, which I, I imagine he even he knew wasn't true. But ultimately his argument was that. The Chinese government allows this, and that was enough to to help him sleep at night. Um, and and then I actually went to a fentanyl lab itself, and I and I describe all this in my book. But I went to a, a lab where they were actually making analogs and um, synthetic marijuana, all this sort of like 
direct to consumer drugs. And it was, it was a fairly small lab on the outskirts of Shanghai. I had to ride like a terrifying half hour in this car with this lab owner and his like bodyguard guy. And he kept asking me if I was a journalist. I, my GPS wasn't functioning. I was in China on a, a tourist visa rather than a journalist visa. So I could have been potentially jailed just for that. It was a very harrowing experience. But when we finally got there, it was just a, a regular office park on the outskirts of Shanghai. You know, it, 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 it looked like anything else. And um, the lab itself, what was shocking was that there, there are only a few employees in this lab, maybe five, but the amounts of these chemicals they were producing were, were enormous. There were big piles of drying chemicals on the lab tables and huge beakers and um, full of the of fentanyl analogs being stirred. And, um, and when, you, when you realize that it's only two grains of rice worth of fentanyl is enough to, to make someone overdose even, when you see it in that quantity, you begin to understand the worldwide demand. Mm -hmm. And where are you finding many of these vendors? Like this lab, for example, is outside of a major city, Shanghai and China, but I'm guessing it was probably in a bit of an out of the way place where enforcement may not have been as, as, as strict. For example, many of the vendors that I was finding who were selling precursors, the chemicals that go and make fentanyl or its analogs, were in what we would call third or fourth tier cities. So bureaucratically very, very insignificant where national scrutiny about trying to stamp out fentanyl and all of its analogs was not really felt. Fonda, you mentioned that there are not that many inspectors from the Narcotics Commission that are tasked with, with inspecting pharmaceutical plants, but because fentanyl is quite easy to make in small spaces, you don't even need to make them in a big commercial plant. What was the lab like, um, the surroundings of the lab like when you visited? Yeah, it was, well, when we got off the, the freeway, this lab owner began singing uh, Country Road, Take Me Home by John Denver. And he, he was implying that we were now in the countryside, which was a little strange to me because there were like 40 story apartment buildings, you know, all around. And it looked like maybe it had been the countryside until recently. But so it had this kind of like rural aspect, but, but you're totally right. There's a saying that I heard and I, I don't speak Mandarin, but it was basically translates to the heavens are high and the emperor is far away. Meaning that getting away from, from Beijing, from like literally, you know, putting literal distance between yourself and the, the capital for and the head of law enforcement um, meant that they were expecting there to be less scrutiny, less, less law enforcement. So places like Guangzhou uh, are, big, are big hubs of this type of chemical industry, especially through all the, um, the access to ports and, and shipping and, uh, and also out of the way places like central, central China and Wuhan. Oh yeah, that's quite poignant to hear about uh, John Denver's song because, of course, West Virginia is one of the places that has been so utterly devastated um, by um, opioid, the opioid epidemic in general, starting uh, particularly uh, with uh, um, prescription opioids before it mutated through heroin um, and to fentanyl. Uh, the 
there were several kind of dimensions that, that struck me from that um, uh, marvelously vivid description um, band that you put and, and Emily's your comments. Um, is that what we in fact see frequently in China is the reality that enforcement is inevitably more diligent in major city and less diligence in places that are far away, uh, further away from Beijing. And that's um, of course true about many countries, right? Why, why are, uh, usually you find uh, coca fields uh, in the periphery areas of Colombia, the further reaches, you don't find them right on the outskirts of Bogota or, or Medellin, although at times that might be the case that the, when production is particularly intense and enforcement is particularly challenged, they will come close to uh, the major capitals. But what's also uh, driving a lot of enforcement in China, not just with respect to drugs like fentanyl, but also wildlife trafficking, um, illegal logging, forestry regulation, is that um, many state uh, provincial level officials and officials below uh, the provincial levels are predominantly judged on how much they deliver revenues, uh, growth of the economy in the particular area, and um, jobs, how much they create jobs, and how much they avoid any kind of violent unrest. So, um, for example, um, Yunnan is well notorious uh, for decades of, of complicity and very thick linkages and interactions with a variety of illegal economies in Myanmar uh, and a variety of uh, militias, organized crime groups, um, as well as the Tatmadaw in Myanmar implicated in illegal logging, um, in wildlife trafficking, in the production of meth uh, methamphetamine, um, incidentally, we are seeing uh, labs uh, or we are seeing seizures of fentanyl in Myanmar. And one of the big questions is to what extent labs are moving um, uh, there as well. Uh, and often um, uh, Chinese nationals, including Chinese traffickers, will be key operators in those markets, not just uh, in, the, in the provinces further away from Beijing, but in the uh, international um, connections like in Myanmar. Now, the second point I would uh, pick up and highlight is, um, you know, your fear that you would run into uh, the El Chapo or uh, Sinaloa Cartel, Jalisca, Nueva Generacion type uh, traffickers with heavily armed and essentially standing armies that uh, number tens of thousands uh, of, um, of of fighters and that um, uh, in places like Mexico generate violence levels um, on the part of civil war, um, 30, 30 plus thousand uh, people dead. That is by and large not the face of uh, drug markets in East Asia at all. The one exception is Myanmar, a country that just experienced a coup d'etat and that has had decades of civil war, uh, centering of ethno-nationalist insurgencies as well as um, genocide perpetrated against the Rohingyas. But putting Myanmar aside, East Asian markets tend to be strikingly peaceful with uh, uh, homicide rates, one per 100,000, two per 100,000, sometimes even less than one per 100,000. Um, no standing army, no, no violence, in contrast to drug markets in Latin America that are uh, very violent, um, with um, homicide rates in tens uh, per 100,000, sometimes even 100,000, and that involve actual um, uh, criminal groups that operate like standing armies. 
Now, synthetic drugs, particularly drugs, synthetic opioids, but, but other synthetic drugs push the, the imagery toward the corporate structure, the, the young chemist, even further away from the standing army. One of the reasons you need um, many men with guns uh, to produce illegal drugs that are derived out of plants, like poppy, like coca, is that you need to control territory. If your drug trafficking enterprise centers on methamphetamine, captagon, uh, or fentanyl, you just need to control few production hubs that can be literally basements of buildings. And so you don't need um, the same level of violence. You don't need the same level of territorial control and coercive capacity in those places. And finally, uh, the states in East Asia, uh, including law enforcement forces, are far more potent. And often they are the predominant um, uh, sources of violence. Um, in a place like Philippines, it is the, the uh, uh, Rodrigo Duterte state that is uh, murdering uh, drug users uh, in the tens of thousands, in the, in the thousands, uh, now over tens of thousands, not the traffickers themselves. So uh, the, your experience with uh, the, the imagery uh, of, of that um, fentanyl production lab uh, and, and selling point is in fact very much what uh, drug markets in East Asia and Southeast Asia frequently look like. So now we've talked about where the stuff is being made. How does it then get to North American users? What pathways does it take? Vonda, you've mentioned various regional production hubs or ways that fentanyl can be entangled in other trafficking. But a lot of the time it's also coming through the mail. How have those pathways changed and are we seeing enforcement efforts make any dent in that? Oh, uh, well, I'll, I'll give the uh, thumbnail sketch. Basically, yeah, Emily, as you mentioned, um, they can often come through through the, the US mail um, and over the dark web very frequently as well. Now it's hard to know, since it is the dark web, it's hard to know where people are based in the, the vendors, but there's, there's lots of them who are in Europe um, this is the same illicit fentanyl that's that's being made in China and India. Just to just to clarify, hospital fentanyl that's used legally and um, you know for end of life care things like that is made in U.S. and European chemical um, companies. But the the dark web fentanyl literally is sent through the mail, and there have been big efforts in recent years to try to crack down on this and. There's been, um, you know, but it's extremely difficult. There's literally hundreds of millions of pieces of mail coming from China every year. And so sorting through these is, is like a needle in a haystack. There are some efforts to use drug sniffing dogs. There's like a, a laser or something you can point um, to try to get the chemical makeup of, of certain powders. Um, but, uh, and there has been some, there actually has been some success in this realm, but unfortunately the Mexican cartels have really picked up the slack and the, you know, almost all of the street fentanyl, not to mention these other street drugs are coming over the border um, from the cartels. And, you know, you heard Trump talk about a wall, but a, a wall is not really effective at stopping these these drugs from crossing over because they're mostly taken in vehicles through traditional regular points of entry and they're stashed in 
certain um, panels in the car, even the gas tank. And, um, and, and there's also these underground tunnels that you heard about El Chapo traveling in and certain drugs are. Yeah, you know, the, the, the reason why synthetic drugs, particularly synthetic opioids like fentanyl, carfentanyl and other analogs. And, and by the way, we are increasingly seeing synthetic drugs that are not fentanyl based. So, so they are still synthetic opioids but the core molecular structure is no longer fentanyl. And many of these drugs will not be regulated or, or not be um, uh, uh, scheduled in China. So they can be sold and exported uh, without restrictions. But the reason why they can be mailed um, uh, is because of what I talked about at the beginning, the, 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 uh, uh, the potency to weight ratio. It's really very inefficient and, and expensive to be mailing packages of cocaine. They are too bulky, the cost is too large. Uh, these kind of drugs, cocaine or heroin, would be too visible. And so that's why uh, you, you don't have much smuggling of these kind of drugs by the post office at all. It is the, the price to weight ratio of synthetic opioids and other synthetic drugs that makes mail feasible. Nonetheless, um, uh, that too is uh, just one of the, the methods, uh, only one of the methods uh, that these drugs are smuggled. Most drugs are smuggled hidden in legal cargo. That's also what's increasingly happening with um, fentanyl. Uh, one of the reasons is that uh, despite the fact that um, in 2015, some 20 billion packages were sent from China to the United States, so extraordinarily difficult to sort through, there has been, as a result of US uh, urging, uh, more of a uh, installations of inspection facilities in China. Um, China has agreed to implement uh, US demand for so-called advanced electronic um, uh, data uh, that is sent to the United States on the first of this year, the US Stamps Act, which mandates that all packages sent to the United States will be furnished with advanced electronic data um, uh, uh, became law uh, in the United States. So there is some uh, effort on the part of China to do so, to, to um, um, better inspect and monitor what's being mailed. But uh, uh, cargo um, sent by ships um, in COVID times more so uh, even than by air um, often has far less um, uh, inspection and um, that is um, uh, really picked up as the as the method of smuggling um, in the last months and in much of um, 2020. I would also you know, say here that uh, that's even though it doesn't stem the, the, the problem of supplying the US market, it's still good uh, because uh, it, it could be less dangerous method uh, than smuggling through mail. The exposure of, of fentanyl, um, uh, exposure of mail workers to fentanyl can lead to uh, overdose for them. And in fact, fentanyl and carfentanyl is so potent that, that can even kill sniffer dogs. So those, so both exposure to mail workers and even uh, um, uh, service animals like uh, sniffer dogs is uh, very dangerous in this method of smuggling. And um, final comment I would uh, make here is that one of the adaptations to uh, COVID and the significant reduction of uh, air passengers that smuggle drugs, uh, as well as um, uh, even legal cargo, is the um, increase in the use of drones for smuggling drugs. That's not new, that pre-existed COVID. 
Uh, it's often uh, a method to smuggle drugs in prisons, uh, quite frequent throughout um, um, uh, Asia. Uh, even prior to COVID, it's been a method to smuggle drugs from uh, Mexico to the United States. Uh, but COVID has uh, upped that trend significantly. And once again, this privilege is greatly uh, supplying fentanyl over supplying cocaine or heroin because of the, uh, uh, because of the potency to weight ratio. And uh, that's a significant challenge for law enforcement uh, because uh, drone traffic um, uh, 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 regulation um, is very similar to airplane regulation. Law enforcement often cannot just shoot down any kind of drone or, or even capture any kind of drone. There are all kinds of uh, restrictions as to um, uh, what kind of law enforcement actions can be taken um, uh, uh, against uh, drones, commercial drones, other drones. And so there's a big regulatory um, uh, gap or difficult area uh, in addition to being um, um, uh, an innovation tool for uh, drug traffickers. So uh, I expect both more uh, wholesale and retail uh, supply of drugs uh, to take place uh, via drones. Five days down the road, users can be receiving their fix at their windowsill. Uh, but also, um, um, we, we really need to focus much more on careful thinking, getting both the legislative tools and the actual operational tools uh, to counter um, the smuggling of fentanyl, in particularly uh, through those um, uh, remote platforms. One anecdote about how just dangerous it is for regulators to police this stuff is I talked to a, an American Homeland Security agent who was part of a major U.S.-China, the first bust of uh, fentanyl between U.S. and Chinese agents here in China, and he said that um, the the lab was tiny, but it was so potent, and all the surfaces were covered with so many chemicals that the Chinese narcotics agents um, got very very sick afterwards, and they ended mm -hmm. up disassembling the entire lab and shipping it to Beijing to assess it there under more more uh, safe circumstances. Um, speaking of U.S.-China cooperation, though. In 2019, China, with some U.S. pushing, did schedule fentanyl and all its analogs and said it would police the production and sale of, of fentanyl more. Clearly, it hasn't been completely effective because people in the U.S. and Canada are still dying of overdoses. Uh, so what are some areas in which enforcement could be better? Where is enforcement lagging and what should the Biden administration be pushing partners in China, India, Mexico and within the U.S. to do to make sure that people aren't, aren't getting this stuff? Well, the first problem is, you know, I, I mentioned this before, but China is literally subsidizing the production of not just fentanyl precursors, but fentanyl analogs. Um, there's what's known as the value added tax rebate. And we don't have it in the US, but most European countries have this. Basically it's when you spend money on the production of a certain chemical, you can get um, that money back via tax rebate whichever um, chemicals the government prefers. So for example, um, certain types of fent fentanyl analogs, uh, three methyl fentanyl, for example, this is an extremely potent fentanyl analog that has only ever been used recreationally. It's killed thousands and thousands of people in Eastern and Northern Europe. Um, there's no medical purpose for it. And yet the Chinese government gives a 13% value added tax rebate 
for companies making this. You know, um, this company I visited in Wuhan, they had offices in an industrial zone that was, you know, that was built by the government. They had their research and development um, subsidized. They had won all these grants for, for, for different chemical processes that they've been working on. You know, these are cases where, sure, this, this company made other legal drugs or, or non-scheduled in the US drugs, but their bread and butter were these awful fentanyl chemicals. And it, it just blows my mind that this is still happening. So I think the, the US, you know, the Biden administration needs to, to put pressure uh, in, in this realm. Um, I'll, let, I'll let Vonda get into a little bit more about the policy implications, but my, you know, not to throw my hands up in the air, but ultimately the US can't control China is the, where I fall on this we can only control ourselves. And I'm a big advocate for what's known as harm reduction, which means understanding that people are always gonna be using drugs and we need to make drug use safer and we need to make drug treatment options easier to access, better funded. Um, there are all sorts of European countries that have really tap down the opioid crisis and it hasn't gotten handed out of hand at all. The public health problems, the crime problems, everything associated with the opioid epidemic can be more or less solved by really robust harm reduction measures, I believe. And we've uh, some examples of those, you know, uh, people are familiar with uh, naloxone, Narcan nasal spray which is basically a miracle drug that can revive people who have overdosed on opioids. There are, throughout uh, Europe and Canada, they have places known as supervised injection facilities. These are places that it's legal to use drugs, but there are doctors and nurses on hand to make sure people use them safely. There's clean needles, there's clean supplies, these uh, facilities have been extremely effective, but in the US there are none. The one that's come the closest to being, being opened was in Philadelphia, but that's facing all sorts of legal hurdles. So also the last thing I'll mention is drug checking. Um, the biggest problem with fentanyl as Vonda mentioned before is that people don't even realize they're taking it. People don't want it. And if someone wants heroin, um, if they have one of these very inexpensive and simple to use drug checking kits, they're called fentanyl test strips. If they have these, they can determine instantly if there's fentanyl in their heroin or not. It's just like a pregnancy test. You mix up a solution, dip the fentanyl testing strip in, immediately it tells you if there's fentanyl or not. And this, this would go a long way towards solving these fentanyl deaths. Well, I very much agree that um, expanding access to treatment, mounting far more um, effective uh, evidence-based prevention measures and embracing um, some key practices that are uh, known as harm reduction, such as access to safe needle exchange, perhaps um, supervision sites, uh, methadone maintenance, and even potentially heroin maintenance are very powerful and very important tools. 
and, and uh, they need to be expanded. And in fact, uh, the expansion of treatment, prevention, and harm reduction, in addition with focus on workplaces and racial equities, are the key five identified priorities of the Biden administration, at least for the first uh, year, which is a very, very uh, good, very positive, highly laudable uh, direction in uh, US drug policy and, and quite uh, really a revolution uh, in US drug policy. I would, however, not discount the role of supply side measures uh, and, and stemming the, um, the, um, the, the flood uh, of drugs um, as, as playing a key role. Vancouver, Canada in general tends to, as Ben described, have uh, a very um, uh, progressive, highly expensive and accessible set of harm reduction policies. Vancouver is perhaps the place in the world that has most expensive uh, harm reduction measures. Yet the uh, opioid epidemic, including fentanyl epidemic in Vancouver is as deadly as in the worst places in the United States, um, such as for example, West Virginia. That's just one powerful demonstration that um, uh, relying simply on mitigation measures um, is not going to be adequate. I mean, we're, we're having this conversation in the context of the COVID-19 uh, epidemic. And that's yet another example of do we simply want to rely on treatment and mitigation, or do we in fact have to rely on stemming um, the infection, which in this case would be staying at home, not traveling, social isolation, and diligent wearing um, uh, of, of masks. It's, uh, and this, this is a basic fundamental lesson from uh, epidemiology that um, uh, reducing supply, reducing the contagion effect, um, is very important. Now, many times reducing supply, such as by eradicating uh, illicit crops, generates all kinds of disastrous um, side effects, uh, political instability, often fuels um, uh, militant groups and, and tramples um, uh, human rights. But stepping, uh, stemming the supply of production um, of fentanyl from um, legal or illegal facilities in China, or for that matter, even from clandestine facilities in Mexico, um, is a very different uh, proposition where um, the, the side effects and inhibitant factors um, uh, that should uh, give us pause about how we think about supply side measures with respect to um, plant-based drugs are quite different. So I do believe very much that there is a strong role for um, focusing on supply side and uh, with respect to fentanyl. And we have different set of problems with the three countries, China, India, and Mexico. With China, clearly the priority needs to be to focus on getting China to schedule fentanyl precursors, uh, also as scheduled drugs, so that export and production will require licenses as well as to think uh, proactively uh, how to re better regulate new synthetic opioids that are coming on the market or for that matter, uh, prohibit them. A second element is encouraging Chinese uh, companies, pharmaceutical companies and, and chemical and agricultural companies uh, that, uh, and, and companies that deal with agricultural chemicals rather to uh, develop much better monitoring measures. I spoke about the lack of inspectors, but there is also often just at the lack of any kind of monitoring enforcement in the production facilities. That doesn't have to be the way. Um, you have uh, chemical production and pharmaceutical production in places like Germany, like the United States, 
And there are best of industry practices that make diversion far more difficult. This is clearly what we need to be encouraging um, Chinese industry, uh, Chinese businesses to move toward. And um, we can both encourage it through uh, uh, positive engagement and we can also mandate it. For example, um, it might well be wise to consider whether any kind of industry and firm that sells uh, legal drugs, uh, medical uh, supplies to the United States uh, would only be able to do so if the monitoring inspection best practices are on part with what we expect um, um, from um, companies in Germany or in the United States. And if this compliance monitorable and, and verified compliance is not there, you're cut out of the US market. Yeah, then I, just, to, just to interject just briefly, uh, you're so right about that. In fact, I was checking um, the USDA, uh, the FDA doesn't even know where these Chinese chemicals are produced. It's that's our, our own monitoring system for our own people's chemicals they have no process for recording where the drugs are made. Right, and part of that is of course that we don't see the, the, the supply out of China is a, a, a black box and China has been um, very unwilling uh, to make it less than a black box. It has shut down uh, DA uh, requests that uh, DA can open, uh, open offices in Shanghai uh, and Ganzhou. The Chinese government uh, has not allowed that. And like uh, in its most extensive cooperation with another country, which is um, um, Australia, when uh, through uh, Operation Task Force Blaze, uh, China was uh, willing to mount uh, really its most extensive law enforcement cooperation with another country, including uh, allowing the uh, presence of Australian law enforcement officials in a number of sites in China, crucial meth production facilities. There is much more that I can uh, say on uh, the policy direction in the US-China relations, but I want to spend a little bit of time on Mexico, where um, you know, Ben um, has um, uh, spoken eloquently and, and powerfully about how Mexico um, uh, is a key conduit uh, of fentanyl to the United States and increasingly place that fentanyl is cooked from precursor agents. Um, yet, unfortunately, uh, we have um, reached a very low point in U.S.-Mexican relations uh, in terms of law enforcement. Uh, there's the, 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 the heyday or the sort of the, 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 the peak of U.S.-Mexico um, uh, law enforcement collaboration centered on the uh, Merida initiative that was signed between uh, the George W. Bush administration and uh, and uh, the administration of Felipe uh, Calderon and uh, later expanded in the Obama um, administration. But since then, we have seen lots of backsliding and stepping down and particularly with the current Mexican government of President uh, Andres um, Manuel uh, Lopez Obrador, that cooperation has really slipped. And in the last um, few months, for a variety of reasons, reached arguably its lowest point uh, since the early 1990s and even 1980s, with the Mexican government uh, uh, being really indifferent to uh, the problem of fentanyl flows in the United States. And in my view, also indifferent, uh, or, or at least uh, not adopting appropriate policies for the extraordinary, excruciating violence levels in uh, Mexico. Uh, but um, 
uh, there is a dark side to that, even for Mexico itself. We are already seeing the spread of fentanyl in Mexico. It has reached nowhere the proportion uh, of devastations in the United States, but in many border areas, fentanyl has wholesale replaced heroin. So the, the public health catastrophe that the US is experiencing is heading Mexico. There's just one uh, of many reasons why we really need to move toward much more robust, much more uh, improved uh, security law enforcement cooperation between our two countries. Mm. So without breaking the flow, we can move now directly into the questions and answers. I think some of them have been touched upon in the conversation that we've had but feel free to message any of us later. Uh, I can give you my email as well, if you feel like we did not answer your question um, in, in the talk. Um, looking at the number of, of questions, I think there are two broad buckets that people are asking about. One is the nature and future of US-China government-to-government cooperation when regulating this stuff and whether that might get better under the Biden administration um, and, and how that, how one would typify the, the cooperation that was going on under the Trump administration and um, China here. Well, I, I, I can talk a little that, bit about that from what I've been seeing, but I'd be interested to hear your experiences first, Ben and Bonda. I honestly don't think that China's regulation of these chemicals is really, really the problem. You know, there's an international UN based body that um, regulates uh, chemicals for all the signatories. Uh, to their conventions, and that includes most of the big countries in the world. And China generally keeps up with them. Um, you know, when it comes to these uh, fentanyl precursor chemicals, there definitely should be more that are regulated, but there reaches a point even with that. You know, when you, when you break down chemicals more and more into their basic components, you, you just can't regulate them because they're used in almost everything and in all sorts of uh, legal, uh, procedures. So um, I, I don't know if that's the problem. I think that, you know, even U.S. law enforcement and Chinese law enforcement have, have been relatively cooperative. Um, there's been a number of kind of Chinese kingpins that China has refused, that the U.S. has indicted, that, Ch that China has refused to send over. And that's a problem. But um, I don't think that the Trump's, you know, administration's um, rapport with China on this issue was, was necessarily very bad. In fact, the Trump administration got a number of things that they asked for. Um, like I said, uh, you know, I, I just to slightly disagree with some of the things Vonda was, was just saying, you know, we, we've had 50 years of the war on drugs and we've had, you know, almost as long, it, almost um, all of that time has been focused largely on the supply side, you know, we've been burning crops in Mexico, we've been sending paramilitary uh, troops all over the world to, to fight drug wars, and we just have nothing to show for it. And um, I, to me, um, you know, harm reduction is, is a more, is a better use of resources. I, I, I agree that we need to be engaged in these dialogues, but, but ultimately, um, when it's coming to uh, issues of addiction and drugs, drugs are always going to find a way. If China's not supplying them, India, we've already seen, is supplying them. You know, Russia is, is supplying fentanyl to, to parts of Europe. Um, it's just the unfortunate fact that the drugs are going to find a way. 
Well, I, I do believe that um, there is a lot of uh, scope for um, improving U.S.-Chinese law enforcement cooperation. Um, it's nowhere on par that it, that it was between China and Australia, as I mentioned in the Operation Task Force place. Uh, and, and the comparison apart, I, I don't really think it's, it's adequate uh, and, and where it needs to be. Um, obviously, uh, that cooperation is to some extent constrained by the broader rivalry uh, between China and the United States, a rivalry that um, will uh, uh, likely take different shapes uh, and, uh, during the Biden administration than during the Trump administration, but it's not going um, to go fully away. There's a whole lot of strategic uh, um, and localized flashpoints between China and the United States in, in increasingly larger parts of the world. But even in this context, um, there is possibility for collaboration. China has uh, positioned itself and long positioned itself, but increasingly so as one of the world's uh, drug cops. Uh, it tends to be uh, even less um, uh, uh, progressive, less uh, harm reduction oriented uh, than the United States. It's very diligently expanding, exporting its law enforcement practices in uh, East Asia and increasingly in other parts of the world like Africa and Latin America. Uh, it's directly collaborated with uh, some of the most egregious practices of the Duterte regime. Those are bad things and, and we shouldn't encourage China uh, uh, to be promoting them. But nonetheless, China takes its, um, uh, its uh, role as a drug cop seriously. And this uh, I think is one of the, the venues um, for us um, to engage China on. And, and part of this China's um, attitude stems from the very different experience uh, of drug use, historic experience and drug policies than we see in Latin America. So in Latin America, uh, the, the, the popular image of the drug problem is the gringos, the United States, forcing uh, uh, problematic uh, policies like eradication and interdiction down the throats of uh, people in Latin America, often poor cocaleros, and uh, high violence associated with drug trafficking and with um, uh, policies to counter them. So there is a strong movement, though hardly uniform, hardly uh, all potent or, um, or omnipotent uh, in Latin America toward drug policy reform. You essentially don't see that in China at all. The, the drug policy reform community in China is, is very small, um, both among academics, NGOs, the predominant image of uh, drug trade is that of opium wars, of the West uh, forcing opioid addictions down the throat of um, people in China. There is very little sympathy, empathy for users. Uh, there is often high approval of very brutal, very ineffective uh, policies such as imprisonment and forced labor. Uh, a so-called treatment, which, which are not treatment. Uh, so so uh, the, 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 the historic memory and the sort of overwhelming narrative and mindset um, is, is radically different in China. But I spoke about, uh, and I'll be interested in your take, Emily, I spoke about um, the, uh, the spread of fentanyl in Mexico. Uh, there is um, also a substantial possibility that uh, China will start experiencing far more robust opioid epidemic uh, than it has. Uh, 
critically uh, uh, crucial um, pharmaceutical companies like Mundi Pharma, uh, the branch of Purdue Pharma or the international branch of Purdue Pharma um, uh, and other uh, opioid uh, prescription opioid selling companies are very aggressively marketing in China. COVID has disrupted that to some extent, but um, uh, prior to COVID, many were projecting that China will become um, its uh, number one uh, uh, customer market. And of course, uh, they're, they're adopting the same wrongful, duplicitous narratives about the lack of addiction uh, of uh, prescription opioids that were at the core of setting off the opioid epidemic in the United States. And so we can help China both to prevent that, to counter that messaging and to sensitize China uh, to those dangers. But if an opioid epidemic takes off there, that might also be a key motivating factor for um, tighter cooperation. I would hope that the cooperation can develop before China starts suffering the catastrophe that we are experiencing in the US. From what I was able to, to glean during the, the Trump administration here in China, drug enforcement cooperation still seemed quite optimistic. People in the various US consulates and embassies talked about how they felt like their Chinese counterparts were very responsive about any leads that they had and cooperation on further drug busts, not just for fentanyl, but for other controlled substances. But the, the attitude, I think, of Chinese authorities has always been to keep the US at a distance. So for example, the big drug bust that I mentioned, um, it would have been 2017, I think, in Hebei province, but they did eventually sentence a number of people to death in China for selling and making fentanyl. The US had that lead, they gave it to their Chinese counterparts. The Chinese counterparts then did all of their investigations on their own. They then went and arrested these people, examined the lab, faxed their US counterparts saying the operation has been a success. And that was the last that the US ever heard of it. And this was a major achievement, but there was basically no involvement once the US handed over its information. It was not like there were both Americans and Chinese police on the ground trading tips and trying to track down leads together. China sort of had this, this firewall with their operations and all the US knew was that it was, it was effective. Um, we've had a number of questions come in about um, how to mitigate the opioid crisis in the US and whether demand for fentanyl and fentanyl is heroin in particular is still going to continue despite the number of, of overdose deaths, despite the fact that people know this stuff is dangerous. Um, relatedly, Ben, you've talked a lot about harm reduction strategies, which is very interesting. Someone is asking, you know, this stuff is, is not quite popular among some regulators in the US, particularly I think of this like just say no attitude or Ron, you mentioned lack of sympathy for, for the users. Um, do we see the fentanyl, fentanyl crisis ongoing, continuing in the US? And if we are going to take a harm reduction approach, Ben, what's one way to sell it to people in the US? Well, unfortunately, the bad news is that yes, the fentanyl epidemic is gonna continue. I mean, it's, uh, as Vonda stated earlier, it's gotten much worse in 2020 and um, COVID was part of that, but there's definitely no signs of it slowing down. The good news is that harm reduction attitudes have come a long, long way in a very short time. So, you know, we had the, the crime bill under Bill Clinton, right? And, and then the kind of the counterpart to that was the criminal justice reform signed by Trump. So if you would have told me that a sort of Republican-led government was going to 
lead this charge, I would have been shocked. Now there are problems with that criminal justice reform, like fentanyl, for example, is specifically excluded from these uh, lower sentences that are given. And in fact, a lot of states around the, company, the country are raising penalties for fentanyl crimes. But at the same time, things like, um, things like uh, telemedicine, uh, doctors being able to prescribe uh, anti-opiate addiction drugs is gaining popularity. There are things like, um, like Good Samaritan laws being passed where if you're with someone who has an overdose, you can call 911 and cooperate with law enforcement without the fear that you'll be arrested yourself. Um, Narcan is becoming more available. There's, there's really been a fundamental shift in the way we see and talk about addiction in this country. And it's even spilling over into things like alcoholism where we're starting to treat it more like a disease than we have before. So I'm, I, I'm optimistic on that front, um, but, but pessimistic about fentanyl. And, and like Vancouver, like as, as, as Vanda said before, it's, it's gotten to be where fentanyl has entirely displaced heroin almost. That, that's all that's being sold on the street. In parts of Florida now, and even in St. Louis where I live, fentanyl is, the, is now the product. It's not just being cut into other products. And part of the reason it's so much more powerful, it gets people much higher. People who have been addicted for, for years and, and haven't felt high have only been able to maintain their addictions now with fentanyl are getting high again. And so it's a, a bad problem. Well, Amelia, uh, I know that we are very close to uh, the concluding uh, moment. So let me just make a few very broad comments. Clearly, um, moving toward treating substance use disorder as an illness, as a chronic illness, is fundamental shift. And that means uh, not putting um, nonviolent users to prison and not hampering their access uh, to medication treatment, psychosocial support, socioeconomic support, not tearing um, families uh, apart. You mentioned in the uh, opening remarks that um, I directed a Brookings project on the US opioid epidemic and its international dimensions. We brought together some of the most um, experienced uh, and highly knowledgeable experts uh, on many dimensions of um, uh, drug use, uh, demand, prevention, treatment, and supply, and produced a very detailed set of papers on how to expand access to treatment uh, from many different perspectives, including insurance uh, coverage, uh, different types of medical provision, medical care provision, uh, how to better regulate pharmaceutical industries, how to uh, move toward policies such as heroin maintenance, methadone maintenance, and other uh, demand, um, uh, other uh, so-called harm uh, reduction approaches, uh, how to deal with addicted women and children, um, as well as what better, how better design domestic enforcement in the United States, how to shift policing to prevent further spread of fentanyl particle westward, as well as on demand uh, on, on supply side measures, Mexico uh, China, and China. So I recommend to anyone who's interested in, in the details uh, to look up our website and to look up the papers that are um, very rich. I will just, just conclude in, um, uh, making my remarks 
that that we are really uh, potentially at, at a very important moment with the Biden administration that has identified uh, treatment, uh, prevention, and harm reduction expansion among the five core pillars of its drug policy. And so I think there is broad resonance and broad uh, and, and very important opportunity to adopt some of these um, uh, policies to achieve far more efficient and far more human res humane results. That said, I don't think we can just give up on supply side policies, particularly for something like fentanyl. I do have to run, but I want to thank everyone for joining this talk and especially Ben and Vonda for lending their expertise. Ben, if there are any concluding remarks, no, just uh, thanks to Emily and Vonda and Clarinda and NCU SCR for having us. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, Emily, Ben, Vonda, for your expertise. I think it's clear 75 minutes is not quite enough really to get through all of the dimensions of this issue that we wanted to get to. So um, Ben and Emily have offered their emails. We've shared links to buy Ben's book to read Vonda's articles um, in Brookings. So I encourage you all to keep learning and to keep talking with your friends and family about this issue. And thank you again so much to our speakers and to my colleagues at the National Committee for making this event possible. And for all of you who joined us tonight, we look forward to seeing you soon. And you can stay up to date on our events um, at our webpage, www.ncuscr.org. And that's it. Thank you. <laughs> Good night, everyone. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.